curve. Up the middle, and this ball game is over. On an 0-2 pitch, Norris wins it for the Athletics. And what a ball game tonight here at the Coliseum. And when it's all said and done, it's a walk-off victory for the Athletics. You know, it's it's. I'm glad that I just looked at my email while that highlight was playing. <laughs> oh, good. I got some good news about booking, so I won't be so curmudgeonly. Because I told you before we started that yeah, I had to keep you in check. To keep me in check, because I might be a little bit dangerous. Because it was a rough week with emails. You know, the thing is, we're trying to cram almost the whole month of August in into like three weeks, weeks three or weeks, two yeah. weeks. You know. And uh, I got a lot of emails out, and I'm trying to do a lot of different spots, and I'm going for some big names. And it basically comes down to this. Look, at we shoot really, really high. And when you do that, you have to expect that you're going to get some no's. Right? I mean, when you are trying to book Rich Eisen and Mike Tirico and Chris Fowler and guys like that, you're going to get no's. And we know that and we expect that. The thing that we don't like is getting ignored. Yeah, I wonder where that comes from. It just seems inhumane to me. It doesn't make any sense. I wonder why they would even do that, like the people that do, and, and we haven't been shy about it in the past, but how is that easier for them to ignore you than it is to just say no? I don't, I don't understand it. And, you know, when I send out an email, a pitch, I might spend 10, 20 minutes on that email, and I send it off, and I just think about my own email. And when the emails come, and you – you know they read them or at least read part of them. And if the answer is no, hitting reply, I'm sorry, Mr. Fowler is not available right now. Thanks for the request. Or he doesn't do podcasts or, or anything. Whatever. Yeah. O- okay. You know, I've never once went back at someone who said no with any kind of snark or – like I can totally accept that. I just don't get the ignoring. And NBC Sports is the absolute worst. Really? Dead effing last. And second worst is book publishers. And it's just like, don't they realize nobody buys books? Doesn't NBC (laughs) realize nobody watches hockey on the NBC Sports Network? Or, I mean, how many people do you think if we walked down the street would know exactly what channel the NBC Sports Network is? That's a good question. I don't believe I do on my dial. And I think we're very honest with ourselves with each other with our audience about what we are in the sports media landscape i mean we know that we're small and independent and we actually take pride in being that and being able to produce the content we do maybe even too much pride in the sense that maybe (laughs) we should be trying harder to to make more of this than we have but we're doing it our way right and we're not going to resort to you know we're not going to resort to like the things that Deadspin does or that kind of way. We're going to do it our way. We're going to be nice to the people we book. Uh, and if that gets us somewhere, great. And if it doesn't get us anywhere and eventually we run out of gas doing this, then we'll, we'll walk away at least knowing we did it our way. Yeah, and either way, uh, it's not necessarily about how big or small we are. It's just about like if I text somebody, I would hope to get a response back. You know, once in a while you send like a mass group text, and I think there's like some understanding there that – if it doesn't 
pertain to you and you're in that group, maybe you just ignore it or whatever. But if I send someone personally a text, and that's kind of what you did with the email. It's not like you're sending a form letter to a bunch of companies. And I don't even expect a real long explanation for why. That's yeah. not even that important to me. Just such and such doesn't do podcasts. Oh, okay. Like we wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but at least we, you know, to stop barking up that tree or whatever. I'm sorry. The month of August is very busy for Chris Fowler. He's not going to be available. Sure. We keep using Chris Fowler. Is it? <laughs> I wonder why. Uh, but I did get good news, and I'm going to say this guardedly, but I believe with pretty strong certainty that next week Paul Feinbaum, the wonderful talk radio host and ESPN personality who has a book about the SEC coming out, will be on this podcast to discuss the start of the college football season. Sweet. So it's not like we're coming up empty there. Sure. It'll be great to have Paul on. And uh, Tariko is going to be on after the break. So this is where we're at. Basically, we have this show and next week. Then we'll be off for two weeks. And then we'll have one more show the Tuesday before the Thursday night kickoff game, which will be our huge NFL preview show, which we should have Deitch uh, on to, to preview the NFL and media. I'm almost certain Mike Tirico is going to join us that day, and Does hopefully the NFL we'll start get Damashek as Thursday well. Thursday or Wednesday? Thursday. It's it was Thursday. only Wednesday that one year oh, because okay. of the presidential. Oh, that's right. That's right. Whatever it was. State of the Union or something. Something. Yeah. But, yeah, it's Thursday almost every year except for that one. Okay. So, anyway, rant over. That show might come out on a Wednesday, but we could talk that about, about that afterwards. Oh, yeah. very. It could come out any day. That I guess I more mean that week. Before football starts. Right, the right. week before football will have I just show. have a fantasy draft that's up in the air still, and I think that was one of the dates discussed, a Tuesday night. So, Well, we're always open about whether it's Tuesday or Wednesday. It doesn't right. really matter to us. It's, it will be out before the season begins. Right, one of those days. Uh, we'll talk more about that next week, about the break and that. Um, this is what we got today. Phil Taylor from SI, uh, who often writes the back page column there. An African-American writer based on the West Coast. Really nice guy. has been kind to us over the years. And we do an interview with him that is maybe the most political you're ever going to get on this show. Is that, why you, I don't mean is that why you mentioned his race? I don't. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, because we deal with a lot of issues of race and social issues. It's very socially political. Sure. It's not like about Democrats and Republicans or Obama versus Bush or anything like that. Right, right. It's about... Things like violence against women, which we've talked about in the show last week. We talked a lot about the Ray Rice right. uh, incident. We deal with that. Uh, Mr. Taylor wrote a back page column for SI about that. And that's why I reached out to him. And it goes into more about Tony Dungy and the comments he made about Michael Sams. And, uh, right, yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting, and it's a really uh, good perspective from Mr. Taylor. And, yeah, that is, I think that is why I mentioned it, because uh, – I don't know. I just feel like sometimes I felt more comfortable talking about the things we did because it wasn't just a white male talking to a white male. Sure. Just the idea that it was somehow a diverse conversation made me a little bit more comfortable in engaging in it. Okay. So. I'm going to listen. I, I I don't think I've been shy about this, but I don't listen to – I don't listen to the parts with us because I, I do those parts. Right. Unless there's something like I really want to look back at or remember or something like that. 
But occasionally I won't listen to the guests, but that's going to be one I listen to. I've actually been listening to a lot of the guests lately. They've been pretty good. And uh, also Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders is on. It's his third appearance in. He hasn't been on that incredibly recently. I think his This last, one I will be listening to for sure, too. His last appearance was uh, on the Football Nation show. So it's his first time in the Sportscasters proper in quite a while. And uh, we had some really great stuff in there as well. We'll do that after uh, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. I think... Uh, as part of the evolution of the sportscasters, I think we've sort of gotten to a point where three things is now actually just three things instead of six. I think we've gotten pretty comfortable in picking out the three things that we want to do and sort of sharing them. As yeah, and even to, that, that's a little bit loose, though, because as, as you'll you find today, out today, it'll be like right? 15 things right. or whatever. But. but I'm happy with the way we're doing it. We're going to start with uh, the NFL, and we just got a bunch of NFL hits, sort of. Uh, the Hall of Fame. Induction ceremony was Saturday. Andre Reid, 36-minute speech, the longest in the history I heard, of the yeah. induction. Uh, capped by a really, really cool moment of Jim Kelly uh, throwing, throwing him a pass, pass yep. uh, which is an original. Dan Marino did that with, uh, I think it was Mark Clayton or Duper, one of the two. But just really cool, if you know what Jim Kelly's been through, right? Uh, to see him there this weekend and sort of how happy he was and uh, see him and Andre – Mixing it up. Thought it was a really great moment for, for Reed, for Kelly, and for Buffalo, really. Uh, Bills fans sort of dominated the crowd there. Uh, and they represented us well, I thought. it's It was pretty awesome. And uh, I think that that's probably it for... Yeah, we, we talked, talked about, about it a little last bit last week. week. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned Kent Hall. And uh, he's not a Hall of Famer based on stats. I looked. Uh, what do they do? It's just you know, it's pro like Bowls, Pro Bowls right? yeah. and all Pro teams and things like that. Walter Jones, who went in the Hall of Fame this weekend, incredibly was called for holding nine times in his career. <laughs> that's unreal. Is he the best ever? I mean, I mean, that's a pretty hard case for it. And his sack total was very, very low as well. Yeah. So, uh, and actually, uh, Aaron Schatz and I talked a little bit later about how we both wish we knew more about. Offensive, offensive line lineman. play and like, yeah, but uh, they're usually like for a position that you would expect. Like if you had never seen a football game before and just watched these guys, like you would be like, "Oh, okay, those guys are the meatheads." You know what I mean? But they're generally the smartest. Like they're the most engaging interviews a lot of times. The offensive linemen, and uh, he also mentioned safety play being really hard to uh, to analyze because you're never exactly sure where the safety was supposed to be. Right. So it's sort of hard to judge. I mean, with corners, okay, the guy on the left corner is covering that guy on the left there. I mean, unless they're playing zone, and then that tends to be sort of obvious too. But uh, I I got his point on safety, and that'll be after this. But uh, anything else on the Hall of Fame induction? No, like I said last week. First punter in. Yeah, Ray Guy got in. uh, He what did he say that, that now the Hall of Fame has a complete team? Complete in there? team, yeah. yeah. Michael Strahan was Reed was second last. Strahan was last. I thought there, it was good. Yeah, I didn't see it uh, because 
I was I said last week I'd be at your stag. I'd probably catch it out or check it out in clips, and that's kind of what I did when I woke up the next morning. I went through and I liked and shared stuff on Facebook that I saw Reed did, and I saw some of the highlights, like Strahan's saying, what did he say? We stomped them out or something like that, referring to the, the Patriots. Patriots. Yep. Yeah, so it was cool. Look, look good. The next day was the first NFL game of the year, the Hall of Fame game, the Bills and the uh, the Giants. And uh, I watched a quarter and a half of it, and you would have hoped that EJ was anything but two of seven. Sure. But honestly, it wasn't that. I didn't see much there. No, and I thought the Bills starting defense looked really good. Uh, I know the the drive that the Giants scored their opening touchdown on looked like the defense was non-existent, but... Uh, Collinsworth, who's the best in the business, I think, at what he does. Yeah, he's he's very good. Quickly pointed out, he's like, yeah, this is happening because they're the Giants ones are playing the Bills twos right now, right? So, and you get a lot of that in the preseason, sure. You know, but yeah, I mean, I would have liked to see EJ. You know, hoped he'd done better, but you know what? That game almost doesn't That's, even count. It doesn't because now they get four. They more, have four regular so, ones. So, yeah. so we'll see what happens in that this week, uh, starting Thursday. I mean, we got to basically we, – what we do, every team is going to play in the next – Thursday, know, Friday, Saturday? Yeah, Thursday, Friday, Saturday or yeah. whatever. I think it's maybe four games on Thursday to get us going. So I, I'm ready. I'm excited, and uh, we'll see what goes on there. Uh, Carl Nixon, the Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, there were some details today. We talked about this last week too. But today there was actually some details about his injury settlement, and it was sort of shockingly low to me. Like I think the reported number is like a $3 million – injury settlement he had a lot of money left in that contract and it sure seemed like the buccaneers were the guilty party there mm-hmm. you know uh but but he has to sign the settlement right I he mean, does i mean it's not yeah. like they tricked him into it right you know but yeah they're gonna pay him three million bucks um his cap hit was like way more way more his deal maxed out at 47.5 million but you have to be careful, and we're going to talk. Let's talk a little bit about Andy, Andy Dalton, Dalton here. Yeah. All right, he signed what looks like a massive contract, and when I heard it, I was like, "Oh man!" But if you look at it, it's basically a deal through 2016, and then t- t- the Bengals can do whatever they want. Right, it's 20 million guaranteed, uh, something in the nine million dollar a year cap hit. So essentially, if he's getting 20 million no matter what, and it's basically a three year deal, that means essentially they're paying him about six million dollars a year for the next three years, and then they'll go from there, basically. Yeah, it's weird. I The NHL uh, salary cap is way easier to figure out. It's essentially your average salary like divided by 82 games right. for that day or whatever. But, I mean, if you break it down even easier than that, it's the life of the contract divided by years. Or, by years, or the, right. the amount of the contract divided by years. Football, when they can give bonuses and – What's guaranteed money and what's not? It's almost impossible. Yeah, you need to be a lawyer. Yeah, they have. I mean, lawyers just that just do this, capologists or whatever they call them. But uh, we talked when the news of the Dalton settlement or the, the Dalton contract came down, and I, I was like, "Yeah, I'm looking forward to killing it." But really, it's probably a, a relatively fair market value contract. I don't know that if I was the Bengals, if I still would have thought that I'd give that contract to Andy Dalton. But what are they going to do in the next three years? Other than Andy Dalton. Is there a cap geek or something for football? There is. 
uh, and I don't know what it is. Someone, <laughs> I, I sent that tweet out, and someone did respond to me. And oh, I, okay. I viewed it, and it was cool, but then I f- didn't write it down. And I guess my I thought it. with the Andy Dalton thing is whenever a good quarterback comes up for a contract, they're going to get money near the top money of all time. And if you break this contract down, six divided by 115, which I know he probably won't end up getting unless he really plays well, in which case I guess it'll be worth it. So 115 divided by six, it's a $19 million per year contract. And I know we've said some of that is already guaranteed money. He's only allowed or he's guaranteed 20. He's guaranteed 20, but the contract is only a certain number of years long. But I mean, that's elite quarterback money. Like, where is that drop-off? Like, where is the quarterback that doesn't get that elite money when well, his I time comes up? Well, I think they all get the elite 115 to 120 number. It's just what will they actually earn? How much of it is guaranteed? Right. That I think separates it. I mean, but I mean you, could, where... you could call it a $200 million contract. If he's only going to get 20, who cares what they say it is? I mean, he's only in his third third year, which I think plays into it a lot, too. I mean, they... You want to pay him in case he does keep progressing, and he has gradually gotten better every year. And maybe it's smart, because what if he has a Joe Flacco season this year, even if he only plays good in the last four games of the year, right. and they win the Super Bowl? Then you have to pay him like the best quarterback then in the they league. Have to, and then they're going to get locked into a really prohibitive contract. So I, I sort of think what they did make sense, because yeah, I, there's nowhere else for them to go today for quarterback. Right. I mean, that's going to be their guy. And like we said, figuring out football contracts, you need to be a lawyer, but the Bills paid Ryan Fitzpatrick starter money. But I mean, it's money that now seemed ridiculous because he turned out to not be that good. But it's kind of start. It was well below this contract, but it's kind of what you hit the going rate for the twenty sixth best quarterback in the league. Now here's where the argument against Dalton comes in. Well, first of all, playoffs. He's been awful in all the playoff games he's played. Right. My first thought when they signed him to this is I want to compare Dalton. I want to go to Pro Football Reference. I want to compare Dalton to Mark Sanchez because Mark Sanchez has been much better in the playoffs. Right. And now Mark Sanchez. Is he even in the league? He, I don't know. Honestly, I don't certainly remember. not a starter. No, certainly not, not a starter. He got a $20 million guaranteed contract. Didn't play one game last year behind Geno Smith. Uh, but he went to two straight conference championships. And was great in the second conference championship game. I remember thinking after that game, well, at least the Jets have their quarterback. That guy's really good. Yeah, and then like, and that was probably the last good eight game he played. Later, right, right. But so I wanted to compare them that way. And Andy Dalton's numbers are much better through the regular seasons. His interceptions are about the same, but he had like thirty-three touchdowns last year. And once you're getting over two touchdowns a game, you're a pretty solid. NFL so there's thirty-four qualified quarterbacks uh, over the last three seasons. Dalton's completion percentage in that time is 60.9. Where do you think that ranks him of those 34 qualified? So I'm sure that means... Probably attempts. right in the middle somewhere. 17th, which yeah. is exactly the middle, right? Yeah. Uh, yards per attempt, 6.97. Where do you think that puts him? Per attempt, huh? That's weird. I imagine it's fairly high. 21st. That's tw- that's worse. I don't. Yep. I just... Every highlight I see of him is him just heaving the ball down the field to A.J. Green. Right, and that's why he has 80 touchdowns, which is ninth. Okay. You know, because a lot of those... Yeah, he just lets A.J. Green go up and beat a guy. And then uh, his total QBR, which is like the ESPN made-up formula that they right, debuted. Right, supposed to be better to than... rival quarterback. Right. Uh, he's 51.5, which is 23rd. 
So he's a statistical middle to bottom third quarterback, I guess. Right, and that's where I talk about the drop off. Like right. what Ryan Fitzpatrick got is like starting. You have to give that to your starter because I mean he's one of the thirty. He's one of the thirty-two. Right. But Dalton got probably double that money. Well, now the Bengals have to start on AJ Green. That's that's up. He's next. I mean, there. It's. I mean, there's a lot of teams that could say this, but that's a good roster, right? I mean, that's a team that's. Yeah, they have a lot of talent. A good Andy Dalton season away from really yeah. making a good play. That's why that was the one thing I said I think might be the best point I made in this long ramble about Andy Dalton's contract <laughs> is that they might as well have gotten it done now and not be in the position that Baltimore was in with If Flacco. they win a Super Bowl or if, something. Right. If you were to put together those games at the right moment. Sure. But uh, uh, speaking of careers that are – Promising one may have ended in Ugh. John. Well, we'll get to that Ugh, one. But John Baldwin, the first round pick oh, yeah. of the Chiefs a few years ago, who started out his career with that weird locker room punch incident. That's it, right. Yeah. The veteran punched him. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember his name. So he got cut. Now, remember last year. So he got picked by the Chiefs in the first round, got punched in the face in his first camp, didn't play very well, got traded last year to the 49ers. For their bust first round wide right, receiver. Yeah. Oh, and Thomas like, Jones. Thomas Jones punched him, right. So uh, Baldwin has now been cut but picked up by the Lions maybe on his last leg. So, yeah. Yeah, you know what? Every year, this this is more of a fantasy take than an NFL take, but every year I always figure, okay, the guy that plays next to Calvin Johnson has got to be open all the time. And once in a while, like Nate Burleson will have a decent year until he gets hurt or whatever. But like no one just exploded there. But maybe it's more about the people because it was Titus Young who could. You, you always expect there to be a John Taylor across from Jerry Rice. Sure. Because there's got to be so much attention given to Jerry Rice. And like, I how can it happen? Still figure that's got to happen. But is, is and it- like with the Cowboys, there was Michael Irvin, but then there was Alvin Harper. And when Alvin Harper tried to take his on the on his own to Tampa Bay, it didn't work. Right, and it made you think. Well, maybe that guy was only good because yeah, so, he was next to Irvin. So maybe if he's going to latch up, maybe this is the spot. I don't know. Give it a try. Uh, the saddest thing of the week, and maybe the last football thing. We'll move on to baseball. Uh, we talked about it last week. David Wilson retired, and what a bummer, though, because he had a lot of talents. He really did, and he got a raw deal playing for Coughlin. Yeah, he just, Coughlin is the worst guy to play for if you're a young kid, and you made one fumble. Yeah, and it was like what well, was that? You're, you're out. Kick returning now. Uh. Neck yeah, it's, it sounds like he's handling it in stride, but it, it he has the right frame of mind. He said, basically, I'm, I'm lucky I got to live my dream for this long, and I get to walk away. So, it, I mean, he means it literally. Like, he, he's still able to walk. So, he's got the good head on his shoulders, it sounds like, and uh, hopefully whatever money he had. And I don't know. Does the NFL – he probably didn't play long enough to get a pension, right? I doubt it. Because it stinks. Because he's effectively I think he retiring. A couple million bucks. I wonder if he can get some sort of long term. Like he may I would have a Lloyd's London type thing where if he never plays again, an insurance policy. Oh, he might like on his own. Right. Yeah. Right. Because like through my work, I have like a long term disability or whatever. I wonder if football players have similar things. Maybe, maybe that's how they do it. Like you said, he insures his knees or neck for millions of dollars. I'm almost sure he probably had one. Playing running back in the NFL. I mean, there's high school kids who get them. Really? No. Okay. You know. Yeah. So. Well, ho- hopefully he does. He does well. A, a real promising guy, and it, it's a bummer. Two years. All right. Second thing this week: Major League Baseball. We said last week in this spot 
uh, I want to thank all the Major League Baseball GMs. They made us look smart. We said last week uh, this the way the baseball season had played out was maybe the perfect storm for a great trade deadline. And yeah, it looks was like maybe a, the best trade a deadline. Hockey trade deadline there. Yeah, it might be the best trade deadline they ever heard. Highlighted sort of by the defending World Series champions, especially essentially remaking their entire roster. So the Red Sox were super active. They traded Lester. And the way everything played out, it sort of seems like the American League is going to come down to which super staff, Detroit's or Oakland, is going to be the one that will get the wins in the in the playoffs and, and make the World Series. Oh, yeah, that was going to be my, my non-baseball fan question. Are the A's still the favorite after their moves? It's the A's and the Tigers. The Tigers have the last, I think, five five Cy Youngs and four MVPs or something like that. So they have Verlander won an right, MVP. How, I was going to say how many are Verlander? Verlander won an MVP and Cabrera won two. So I think that's three straight MVPs. And then I think Verlander has maybe two or three Cy Youngs and uh, Scherzer won the Cy Young last year. Uh, so they're, they are crazy, crazy stacked right now. Uh, but the A's are right there with him. My second question. No oh, one... and Price has a Cy Young, who's now with the Tigers. Okay. Did the Braves do enough? No, the Braves are toast. They're done. They're toast. They've lost six straight. Uh, they got swept by the Dodgers and the Padres. There's still only three games out of the playoff. Uh, they're, the two division. Out of, they're two out of the wild card right, right now. And three out of the division. Right. Um, but they're not hang? good. Pittsburgh is a team that I thought uh, could have done more, but... Seem like they're peaking at the right spot, but now McCutcheon might go on the DL. Hmm. So how good is Pittsburgh if McCutcheon misses two weeks? Will they still be afloat when he returns? Uh, but I think it sort of comes down to this. is sort of where we're at right now. So in the American League, you can pretty much uh, count on Detroit winning the Central and Oakland or Anaheim winning the West. And then let's just say Baltimore wins the East. That means whoever doesn't win the West is getting a wild card spot. Right, so it's between... And then it comes down to Toronto, New York, Kansas City, Cleveland for the other spot. That's where we're at in the AL. And don't count out Cleveland because I think they have the easiest schedule, despite being maybe the furthest out right now. Now, I know the Yankees aren't a particularly good team this year, but it's got to be a scary team to make it into... If they make it into the playoffs in Jeter's last year... And, you know, they're, the the trade deadline has passed, but that doesn't mean you can't trade for a guy who needs to clear waivers. And the best guy to sneak through ra- waivers is a guy with a huge contract. So mm. don't be surprised if the Yankees added a guy with a huge contract at the end of August if they if they think that they need They're not afraid to spend an extra whatever to maybe make it at the end. Yeah, I'm no Yankee fan, but if they made the playoffs, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm all about stats, too. I don't usually speak in terms of, like, voodoo or whatever but man they just that yankee magic and jeter and they'd be a scary out i think and then uh in the national league basically where we're at there is uh let's say the nats are gonna win the east because i think the braves are done uh let's say uh the dodgers or the giants are going to win the west we'll give the uh, one wild card to them whoever doesn't win it right and then we got let's say milwaukee or St. Louis or Pittsburgh, and the other wild card will come from one of those. That's a that's a brutal division, essentially. And if you want to say the Braves are still sort of in it, 
<laughs> but my guess is Washington, Milwaukee, and the Dodgers, or, or the Giants, and then the Dodgers or the Giants plus Pittsburgh or St. Louis. So we're about there. We're getting there. Let's see what have they played. Uh, 111 ish games, 110. So about 50 left. Down the stretch. You know what? As a non baseball fan, I mean, I know the knock from any non baseball fan is the season's just so damn long. But that said, like, there's just no great teams. Like, the best team is going to be about 600, which means they win six out of 10 games. It's not exactly like they're winning eight out of 10 games, like a basketball team or a, a really good hockey team would. So even with 162 games, it always amazes me that it comes down to one or that playoff game or whatever. Yeah, I, uh, it's like the old joke, you know, with uh, you do three out of ten or something, and you say, well, you'd be in the Hall of Fame in baseball. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, all right, uh, let's do one last thing here. Third thing, just a few sort of loose ends that didn't fit anywhere else. Uh, Tiger Woods uh, left the course after eight holes, I think, eight holes like or so on Sunday. Uh, with back spasms, uh, he's battled this back injury all year. Uh, it hasn't been a decision as we run if he's going to play in the PGA Championship, which is this weekend, uh, the last major of the year. Uh, right now, Rory McIlroy has taken over as the best golfer in the world. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Number Maybe. one golfer, talented. We've been waiting for this from him, and uh, it's sort of his thing right now, but that doesn't mean that's necessarily good for golf. Tiger is always going to be best for golf but Necker is young though, that right? might really be coming to the end like we might be getting really close to the end of tiger woods as a super competitive golfer I, I mean it's sure you know what's funny about that is if that is true you're going to be able to look back years ago and say like wow this started and maybe people just didn't want to believe it but he hasn't really been that good for quite a while i mean he's been where has he finished top 10 ish in events he was able to finish, but he hasn't really sniffed. He them. had a bunch of wins at the beginning of the year last year, just not in a but major. But a little, right, yeah. Right, not in a major, but, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy how quick it kind of, you know, 2009-ish. So do you think McElroy, I mean, he's not an American. Is that is that the idea that Tiger Woods is, was a young American, African-American? I mean, yeah, and, and just the I mean, level he was dominant of dominance, too. Right. too. I mean, yeah. just a transcendently great. Not just... Good or great, but transcendently great. But, I mean, McElroy's only 25. It's his chance. I mean, he's the next guy up, right? Can he be that popular for golf? Probably not, right? He's not American. You know, it's kind of like, to use a wrestling analogy, in the 80s when there was Hulk Hogan, right? And then when they started to wind that down, it's like, well, let's try to put the belt on Macho Man. Let's try to put the belt on the Ultimate Warrior. Okay. You know, and those guys were successful, but they never sold 90000 in the Silverdome. Sure. Right? So... I think golf just has to get used to their new normal. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the best golfer in the world is only going to be able to carry this sport to this level, and it's just not going to be the level that Tiger Woods did. Right? And we don't have the LeBron James yet to Michael Jordan. Right, right. Now, it's it's McElroy's chance to see if he can be the LeBron to Jordan or the Kobe to Jordan or whatever. I just think even if he but, is dominant, I mean, he's going to have against him that he's not American and he's white. Like, that was part of Tiger's appeal. He had universal appeal that way. Uh, so we'll see that. We'll talk about the PGA next week, the last major of the year. UFC, I want to ask you about this real quick. Uh, they had a fight 
in the press buildup between uh, Jones and Cormier. Yeah. Do you think that was a work or a shoot? I don't think it's intentional. I really think that Dana White, I, I have, my, my brother's the UFC fan in the family. I'd have to talk to him, but I don't think Dana White likes this stuff. I don't think he, I think he wants his sport taken seriously a little bit. And I think things like this don't help in the places that it's still illegal to have. Like it looks like a joke. It looks like, uh, uncontrollable animals. Like they, they just can't be professional. So I don't think this helps. It might help. It might help with the fans that they already have maybe. Cause like, if you like your guy, you not even waiting. Like I love to see that passion, whatever, but I don't know. I've always been a fan of guys like, uh, George St. Pierre, they're a little more technical. Like, it's not about, like, just knocking someone's face off. It's about, like, beating them because you're a better fighter. And, yeah, I really I really don't think Dana White likes this stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right. Dana White is great. I actually saw an interview with him on the new Jim Norton show on Vice. Okay, yeah. Really interesting guy. Uh, he's brought the UFC to levels that I don't think I'd, anyone dreamed the UFC would ever be. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, but, yeah, I think I agree with you on that. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on, uh, the USA basketball played a showcase game in Vegas over the weekend, and Paul George had maybe the most gruesome sports injury I've ever seen. I didn't see it, and you told me not to. Yeah, if you I haven't know the most, seen it, don't bother. I remember the most gruesome one I had seen growing up was on SportsCenter or something, and Robin Ventura, I think it was, tried to hook slide around a catcher, and like his cleat got stuck in the dirt or something, and it just essentially snapped his leg. So uh, yeah, I, I saw I saw the video links on Facebook to the Paul George thing and just said, "Nah, I'm good. I I, I don't need to see it." The interesting thing that it brings up is, so at the Olympics in hockey, we had John Tavares get injured and miss the rest of the season. Now we've had in basketball, in not even the Olympics, but essentially a, a friendly, right, uh, in the summer. I mean, it wasn't in the world championships. It was essentially a friendly. Yeah. Uh, we've seen a, a big basketball star now get hurt. And, I mean, this is the kind of injury that maybe you never recover from. But, you know, it, it's still it's a bone, which is better than a, a ligament. I didn't watch it. Did he land on somebody? or? I think it was the, the pull under the basket. Ah. Well, his foot kind of got caught in. His weight came over the top. and You know, your brother plays high-level college hockey. We got friends that play at the pro level. Uh, and I'm always surprised. Pat Kane was just all over kind of hockey news. Cause he came back to Buffalo and dominated an ice hockey, uh, men's league game. Right. And our boy Vinny had seven, seven goals. goals. In that game. Yeah. I'm always, I was always a little surprised that they were allowed to do that. But I mean, you, I think you're the one that kind of said to me that I think the coaches are just glad they're staying in shape. Yeah. They want them to play with basketball. They have a summer ball summer leagues and stuff like that too so but maybe not for stars yeah yeah maybe not i i don't know it'll be just it's gonna fluke accidents or fluke accidents guys have hurt themselves tripping on their dogs or carrying groceries up their stairs and other leagues so at least the guy hurt himself i I don't know i guess maybe he's more likely to beat injured doing something that he wasn't riding a motorcycle or something though like uh who was that roethlisberger right right at least he's hurting himself doing something, I guess, that might be beneficial to his career. I don't know. I, it's a fluke thing, I think. I, it doesn't happen all too often, That it, at least nothing that serious. 
All right, we're going to take a break. We will be right back with Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders. Our next guest lives in Framingham, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Brown University. He's the creator of Football Outsiders and is the lead writer, editor, and statistician of their Football Outsiders Almanac. He also writes for ESPN and ESPN the Magazine. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Aaron Schatz. What's going on, Adam? Or Aaron? Hey, man, Adam? that's great. That's a nice little intro there. Yeah, uh, yeah. I like that. Usually I get the, um, the, uh, that Shots song. Oh, right. Okay. By, by the people that did the, the party rock song thing. Now, uh, were you a Brown, uh, were or are, are you a Brown hockey fan at all? I mean, you know, when you go to school, that's the sport you follow. Yeah. Not football. Did but, you, I mean, I haven't paid attention in a long time. Did you ever go to the Yale Brown uh, weekend where one's in Brown on Friday or Yale or vice versa and other ones? I did not. I did not. I was not much of a, of a, of a college sports guy. It's not much of a college sports college. Yeah, my brother plays for Yale, and Brown is going to be one of the few schools I probably never get to on the road because of the way they do it with the weekend. It's too far for just you know one game or having the travel in between, so I might not ever get well, to Brown. Well, it's not that far. It's only an hour and a half. Yeah. His sophomore year, I think, was there was a huge blizzard in, in Rhode Island that week, and I was going to go, but it was snowed out like three different times, so... Oh, anyway, no. Ah, the horrors of hockey in the Northeast. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's been a while since we had you in. Um, I've been checking out the Almanac this year, uh, enjoying it. Thought I'd get you in, see what, what you're thinking going in. But before I get into this year, I was just curious of one thing about last year. Um, so I'm always curious about this statistically. Uh, the Seahawks, where do they rank uh, statistically in the things that you guys track compared to, say, the – 10 or 5 or whatever previous Super Bowl winners? Um, I mean, they're one of the top teams we've ever tracked. Oh. No question about it. I think people kind of slept on how good they were last year. Um, when, once you incorporate, you know, the quality of their schedule playing in that, that division where, where that division was so good, um, they're the fifth best team in our DVOA ratings that we've ever tracked going all the way back to 1989. Who's the best? And uh, the best is the 1991 Washington Redskins. Okay. Followed by the 2007 Patriots, 2010 Patriots, and 96 Packers, and then the Seahawks. Wow. So those two teams that the Giants beat, the Giants beat the second and third best teams all time in your rankings in Super Bowl. Second best. The third best team lost in a gigantic upset in the divisional round to the Jets and Mark Sanchez, of all people. Oh, oh. That was Sanchez's second straight AFC championship, or was that the first I believe run? that that was the second one. Yeah. Yeah, that was when he looked really good in the AFC championship game, and I remember Jets fans saying, like, we got our quarterback, and it was just all downhill from And there. it's actually yeah. not – listen, the fact is that in a sport where one game kicks you out of the playoffs – the best team over a 16-game period is not going to win the championship most of the time. And in fact, if you look at the top 10 teams all time in DVOA, most of them did not win the title that year. Not only those two Patriots teams, but the 95 49ers, 
the 2012 Seahawks and Broncos, the 2004 Steelers, that's the team that went 15-1 and and then lost to the Patriots. So, um, you know, those Patriots teams are not alone. Obviously, the 2007 team is the big flashing neon sign of shocking upsets, given that there's a big gap between the 91 Redskins and 2007 Patriots and every other team of the last 25 years. Hmm. Now, I, I probably should have asked this first, but I sort of assume, you know how when you know something, you assume other people do? Do you want to sort of explain what sort of layman's terms, what DVOA is for maybe people who aren't as familiar with football outsiders as we are? Sure. It's a messed up acronym that I chose 11 years ago and got stuck with. Uh, no, what we do is, you know, it's advanced stats for football. The basic idea behind the main stat is that we take every play during the season, we judge it based on its success that considers both the down and distance. Then we compare that to a league average based on situation and opponent. And that gives you an overall percentage of how much better or worse a team is. And you can also use that not only to look at splits, like by down or by position on the field, but you can also compare like to like. So you can compare quarterbacks to other quarterbacks, wide receivers to other wide receivers, and so on. Now, would you? is it fair to say that Kerry J. Burns' site, is that sort of your rival? Like, is that the other one? Like, cold hard football no. facts? Like, <laughs> no? Okay. All right. Um, th- okay. So here's a good way to put it. There are three main ways that you can do NFL analysis. The first is you can analyze the play-by-play in order to get sort of mathematically, you know, tweak it a little bit to look at, uh, try to drill through context. The second is that you can chart gains to create new statistics that didn't exist before. And the third is looking historically at things. In the first category, I would put as our main competitors, uh, number fire, and then, yeah, Kerry, and, of course, Brian Burke. Okay. In the second category, Pro Football Focus and Casey Joyner. And in the third category, that's a lot of like what Chase Stewart does at Football Perspective. Although I certainly would never call him a competitor since he writes for our book and is a good friend. Um, and then the fourth category is college stats, which not really anybody really does much of other than us with Bill Connolly and Brian Fremo. Um, so I think we're the one site that sort of does all does of these all things at once. Uh, but we have a number of competitors in different areas. Um, I don't know. We're pretty proud of what we do, but we're also kind of proud of the fact that all these other sites have sprung up in our, in our wake. I mean, we, we were really the first folks to really do this back in 2003, um, but it's been quite a revolution since then. I just want to ask you one follow-up on that, and I, I don't want you to take this as like me trying to strip a controversy. It's not that at all. I'm just curious, and I won't even say any other. But when someone says another metric is better than your metric, whatever one it is, why, why do you, what is the reason you say, no, this is, DVOA is the best one because if someone were to say uh, carries or some of the other sites you mentioned were – a more appropriate metric, and what, what is what is the bat? I'm just curious. Well, sometimes the issue isn't best; it's different. Okay. Right. I mean, sometimes the issue is what what do you want your metric to do? 
I mean, certainly, you know, DVOA can't judge individual offensive linemen. I mean, I have a problem with some of what Pro Football Focus does with their attempts to grade individual offensive linemen, but I'm never going to claim that a team-wide statistic like DVOA does anything to try to measure individual offensive linemen. It doesn't. So, uh, you know, listen, I mean, I have my reasons why I like what I do. I like... Uh, the fact that we adjust for opponent, I, I think that it does a really good job. And by going play-by-play, play, I think that going play-by-play play is better than one of those blender-type statistics. You know, like passing rating is a blender. You stick a bunch of numbers into an equation, and it spits out a result. It's not really looking at the play-by-play play specifically. What's the context of every play? So I think that's the advantage of DVOA. But for the most part, it comes down... Listen, the... the, the the, I think the most common sort of alternative to DVOA is either expected points added or expected wins added. A lot of that, you know, primarily being stuff like that Brian Burke does. And it's not a question of better or worse. They serve different roles. Expected points added and expected wins added are purely backwards looking, whereas DVOA sort of tries to be both backwards and forwards looking, it's kind of a complicated concept. I tried to explain it as an attempt to drill down to the platonic ideal of a team's quality, right? Like, if you knew the truth, like the inner cosmic truth about how good a team was, that's different from how good they will be in the future. And it's also different from how good they may have been in the past. And that's kind of what my goal is with DVOA. That's why it sort of mixes being backwards-looking and forwards-looking. Whereas Brian really has some stats that are purely forward-looking and some stats that are purely backwards-looking. So it's not a question of what's better than something else. It's a question of what does a better job of serving the goal of your analysis at the time, and do you understand the strengths and weaknesses of the stat that you're using, whether it's one of mine or one of his or one of PFFs or one of... Gotcha. That makes sense. Another thing I was curious about is you have a you have an almanac that you release every year, and I was kind of thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about asking you to come on. Is I'm sure you you guys there's so much. It's obvious. It's such a. I really recommend it to our listeners. Why I wanted to have you on. It's such a great resource, and you guys put so much time into it. And I wonder. I'm sure that when you guys started, it it was the almanac was the was the the number one thing and, and it may or may not still be i guess that's sort of what i'm asking but has this, the almanac season shifted a little bit to like what you guys do online and what you do currently cuz once you print the almanac you sort of can't change it right it's almost like fantasy football magazines but obviously different once those goes on the shelves they are what they are uh, with your website you have feature articles that you're always posting and, and you go all season and you're tracking the teams. Has, has it shifted at all with the focuses a little bit as the years have gone on? You know, it's actually sort of the opposite. Okay. I mean, the site existed first in 2003 before we started doing the book, right? The book started as pro football perspectives and there was actually a pro football perspectives book done by another group of guys before us, but it didn't sell very well. So they approached us to do the book. I mean, I think that you could certainly argue that I'm stuck in a past paradigm here. I grew up with Bill James, and I grew up right. with yearly abstracts. And then through college and after college, it was baseball perspectives every year of the book. So my mind thinks produce a book every year. Is that the best way to do it in the future? You know, it's possible that in the future we'll move to something that's more of an app. You know, a preseason app where certain things get updated throughout the, the preseason. 
But but the advantage of the book is that by not making it something we have to constantly try to update, we can really focus on good writing. And that's my goal. I've always felt that that is what makes Football Outsiders different from other sites that do statistical analysis, which is that I'm really focused on making sure we have really good writing, not just a bunch of numbers, but writing that explains the numbers, hopefully has some wit, has some wisdom mixed in with it. And if you have something that you're trying to constantly update, you can't, you know, focus on making sure that Mike Canyers just got really good, funny metaphors. You know, I was I was curious about this too. I know how proud you are of the book and all the work you do. Is another thing that makes you really proud is how some guys that, like Mike Tanier comes to mind as a guy who has when he's explaining me his history, a teacher in Philadelphia started writing for you, and I mean now he's like the head football writer at a major website, uh, Sports on Earth. Is that something you're proud of about how people seem to have recognized how great the writing is by using your writers in huge positions across the internet and in the fo- pro football media? Damn Skippy. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's a little annoying because I have to go find replacements. <laughs> but I bet. I like, I like my coaching tree. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's pretty cool. There are guys out there who have written for me that people don't even realize used to be my guys. Like David Gardner from SI who does college basketball for them and was the original assistant editor at Football Outsiders back when it was not a full-time position, when it was just somebody who would help me do grammar fixing. So he used to write college football content for the book. So uh, I think it's great how many people have come out of Outsiders. Listen, I mean, I absolutely think it is part of my job to give the people who write for me ideas and pointers and insight on improving their writing so that they can get their point across in a better way uh, and really make their case to people when they want to argue something. I love the the football coaching tree analogy too. I, I wish I would have thought of that when I presented the question. That's great. Uh, my yeah, two- man, I'm like the Bill Walsh <laughs> of this stuff. Man. You are. Uh, I would have said Parcells just because I'm a huge Sean Payton guy, and he's from the the Parcells tree. But I respect Walsh. He's certainly the innovator of it. Uh, my curiosity for process sort of has us in the weeds a little bit here. I want to ask you a little bit about this season. Uh, I want to ask you this way: when you, when you look ahead to the season coming up, what things what what on-field stories are you most excited to track statistically through DVOA or any of the other things that you track? Well, um, wow, what teams are most excited? I mean, one thing I'll say is that our projections have less turnover this year than in a lot of years. Um, some of that is that teams that, like the Packers, should have been a team that missed the playoffs and then would have been the surprise, quote-unquote, surprise playoff team, but then they didn't miss the playoffs. Um, I think... A big, a big thing is going to be Seattle because they're so good and so young. It, it's a rare for a team to be this good and be one of the four or five youngest teams in the league. They truly are set up for a possible dynasty made most difficult by the fact that they're in the much more difficult conference and in the hardest division of that conference. So I think that's a really interesting storyline for this season is what happens there. Um, I think another really interesting storyline is how long can these old great quarterbacks keep it going? Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, 35 years old or older. You know, Manning had one of the greatest seasons of all time last year. Tom Brady actually 
was like the second or third best quarterback in the league after week six, <laughs> which yeah. people don't realize because that team struggled so much yeah. from week one to week five. And Drew Brees is still great, too. So the fact that these guys keep it going into their late 30s, I mean, when does this end? It has to end at some point. Drew, when does that happen? Drew Brees says 10 years, right? I, I think he believes it, too. I mean, he I, I don't know if he totally believes 45, but when he said 10 more years, but I, I think he believes he's still got a lot of gas left in his tank. See, it's interesting. The question is, maybe they're right. It, it's possible that there is that much gas left in their arms, and there certainly is that much gas left in their brains. My question is whether there's that much left in their legs. You, you can already tell that uh, Tom Brady doesn't feel the pass rush as well as he used to. Breeze took more sacks last year than he has in the past. So actually, my question with aging with this guy is, let, uh, you know, the deep ball is not as strong, but their accuracy is still strong. My question is, the pocket presence and their mobility in the pocket, does that start to go at one point, and how does that affect them? Well, I mean, I've had the pleasure of watching every single game Drew Brees has played since 2006, and he definitely got hit more than he ever has in that period last season. But he also probably had the worst offensive line he's had in New Orleans as well. Yeah, it's a mix. It's a mix of the two. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And like for Tom Brady, I mean, you know, Ryan Wendell last year really struggled compared to the year before. I mean, almost to the point where Chris Price, who wrote the Patriots chapter, and I have been talking about whether you know by mid year is this kid they took. Uh, Stork, I believe is his name, who won the Remington Trophy last year. Is he going to just be in the starting lineup? So, yeah, I mean, the Saints had had some offensive line issues. The Patriots did. Manning is incredible. I mean, the dude loses his left tackle, and he still doesn't take many sacks. But it's going to happen for him, too, at some point, not because his mind isn't fast enough or his arm, but because the feet. Right. It's almost like those guys are, like, sixth offensive linemen for their team. I mean, the Saints have lost so many offensive linemen to free agency. They've almost never kept one. I think maybe Jahari Evans is like the first one that they finally were like, all right, we're going to give this guy a big contract. But And it seems like almost all the time those guys are never quite as good on their second team. Bushrod has been really good, had a really good season for the Bears last year. Um, yeah, but, but then again, that also makes you go, hmm, is that Bushrod or is that that offense? Because, look, they took a guy that Jets had jettisoned, a guy that Saints had jettisoned, uh, and a fifth-round pick in Mills and turned that, along with a first-round pick, into a great line. How do they do that? I don't know. Right. Offensive line play is, is like the one thing I wish I knew more about. Because it, it, I almost feel it, like... it, it is a great mystery in yeah. some ways, how these pieces, how the puzzle pieces fit together. You know, we can try to judge guys individually, but it's very difficult. When you don't know the line call, you don't know whether a guy's bonus assignment or not. I mean, you can see when a guy just gets plain out beat, but a lot of times when you have like a, a, a rusher comes in untouched, you have no idea who screwed up. And you, we can't grade that or judge that in any way. So it's really hard to judge from the outside. Not as hard as safety play. Safety play is the hardest thing to judge from an outside perspective, whether you're using either film or advanced stats. Either way, without knowing what the safety's responsibility was on a play, judging safety play is very, very difficult. Unless a guy is just flat-out, like, amazing, either as a center fielder, like Earl Thomas, or as a hitter, like Bob Sanders used to be, it's really hard to judge safety play. 
Yeah, and I th- not to keep going back to the Saints, but I think they're going to really blur the lines with safety this year too. It almost seems like they're going to have three on the field all the time, and they're going to use them really close to the line of scrimmage. It might be there's a little bit of that already with Roman Harper in the past. I mean, I think that the the Panthers like to blitz their defensive backs a lot, and now they have Harper, so he may be like a little bit more of a linebacker. So definitely, there's like a, a kind of a whole trend towards that in the whole NFC South. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see how that plays out. The sportscasters are here finishing up with Aaron Schatz from Football Outsider. You can find him on Twitter. He's at F-O underscore A-S-C-H-A-T-Z. Uh, we were talking a little bit about the Football Outsiders Almanac, which has a PDF version, which looks amazing on the iPad and is really easy to navigate and read through there. I highly recommend. Uh, you can find that at www.footballoutsiders.com. Just give me a couple more things before I let you go. Some other things you're looking forward to track, looking ahead to this season, uh, some other stories you're looking forward to play out. Anything else you want to throw at us? First thing I should point out for people listening, the PDF is 1250 Okay. We also have a book version that's 2295 in print, and you can get that either through our website or at Amazon. Uh, nice, big, hefty book for those of you who like the old school of actual dead trees. Um, you know, listen, here's the thing about what storylines are you looking forward to. Every year has storylines you never expected. You didn't know about right? <laughs> right? Yep. Um, okay. But, if, you know, if you think about the storylines everyone likes, the rookie quarterbacks are a big one. Um, first of all, Manziel. I mean, the dude's exciting. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you think of him as a quarterback. I think he's very talented. Right? I think he's going to be a success in the NFL. But whether he's a success or not, it's going to be awfully exciting watching him do it. And then you have Bridgewater who guys like us were totally on for the whole year. I mean, Doug Farrar, who writes for our book, and used to write for my site, now he writes for Sports Illustrated. And, yeah. and Doug was still saying right before the draft, he thought Teddy Bridgewater was the number one prospect. He couldn't understand this whole business where he dropped just because he would look bad on one pro day. So now you have this guy, he dropped at 32nd. What's going to happen when he gets on the field? It's very likely he's going to be starting by mid-year, if not before then. And he's got a very talented wide receiver who himself is an interesting story because Cordarrelle Patterson doesn't really know how to run roots very well. He's all natural talent right now without technique. What happens when the technique gets learned? Um, so, I mean, you know, rookie quarterbacks are always an interesting story, but, but you know, I think I find these guys to be particularly interesting. And then you have Bortles, who, you know, for a lot of us was number three in our minds and ended up going first before the other two guys. I think he's got the most, a lot of, I mean, obviously Manziel's going to have the most pressure, but I always think about the Jaguars just need that pick more than almost anyone to hit. Like the, you know, Gabbard being the 10th pick and that not working. And Justin Blackman was the fourth pick. We might never see that guy again. It's like, they really need this one to work. Now, see, I think Manziel has the most pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Because first of all, he's got the pressure of all He's got crossover pressure. Yeah. And also, he's got, listen, Jacksonville is a nice city and all, but in Cleveland, they have been waiting for a winner for so long, not just in this sport. They're desperate in every sport. <laughs> okay? In a year, they may not be. Okay? LeBron James may fix that. But right now, that city is desperate, desperate for a championship in any sport they could possibly get a championship in. And here comes the most lauded, publicized quarterback prospect of the year, into their city, that is pressure. Yeah, and he's got that crossover pressure. It's not just football fan pressure. I mean, he's got 
you know, celebrity pressure as well. Like he, he almost, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different kind I, of animal. It's funny. I wonder was, okay. I know this is a really, this is such a like hot sports take first take kind of question. LeBron James signing with Cleveland. Is that good for Manziel or bad? Is it good for him because I thought it about that. takes attention <laughs> off him? Or is it bad for him because it puts more attention on him because now you have this whole, like, oh, we're waiting for LeBron and Manziel to go to a club together or something. I mean, the, these things obviously don't have that much influence on a football field. I would hope most of these guys are professional enough that, that this stuff doesn't affect them on the field and their confidence and all that, but... There's no question it is an issue. It's not an issue we can measure with stats, so it's not something I will write about very much, but it's certainly something worth wondering. I want to give it out one more time. It's www.footballoutsiders.com. It's at F-O underscore A-S-C-H-A-T-Z on Twitter. Uh, he mentioned, it's funny how I mentioned the, uh, focused a little bit more on the PDF and you're like, Hey, don't forget there's a binded version out there too. Uh, which is, Hey, uh, listen, we make more <laughs> money off the PDF, man. That's the thing about the modern economy, right? PDF has no overhead for us. So and if people just, want to buy the PDF, it costs less and we make more money. And it just looks great so on the iPad do. too. Yeah, it looks really great on the iPad. Hey, I want to squeeze one more real quick thing and real quick. I just want to ask you one more thing. And I'll let you go. I'm sorry. Uh, I always talk to Jonah Carey about this. We talk about how when we want, to talk advanced stats in baseball. Boom, I'm dialing Jonah Carey right away. And then I have, like, a tweener in Jeff Passan who, like, is sort of about the advanced stats, but he's still sort of a traditionalist. And then we got this other pool of writers who tend to be traditionalists, and things like war come up less uh, when we talk to them. Uh, where is the, the football landscape right now when it comes to, like, advanced stats versus more traditional views of analysis and where do you think you fit oh. in and, and things like You know what I'm getting at? I don't know if that's I a think, question look, as much as... The fact is that with us, with the young generation, with my generation of writers, it, it's really much less of a line and much more of a, of a, you know, of a span that's just sort of gradual. I mean, listen, Doug is a... Doug is a film guy, first and foremost, but he knows my stats. He has since the very beginning. He can quote our stats. So our stats inform what he's looking for on film and vice versa. So you have someone like Andy Benoit, who also writes for Sports Illustrated, used to write for me, or Kian Fahey, who does our, uh, who now does that column film room that Doug used to do and Andy used to do. And so they're more on the film side, but they understand the advanced stats. And then you have Doug kind of in the middle, and then you have me, kind of a little farther down the line, uh, more towards stats. But, I mean, since I started this 11 years ago, I've always been uh, trying to overcome the that stats versus scouting concept, you know, the idea that they work together. So I think that for the generation, for my generation, and then when you go, even when you go into, like, uh, beat writers, like Mike Reese and Mike Sando, and these guys understand this stuff pretty well. Um, the older folks don't. No, no disrespect to them, but right. the older folks don't. And the worst is the color commentators and the guys in the studio shows on TV. I mean, beat writers have come so far since I started this 12 years ago. Beat writers have come so far, and TV commentators so have not. <laughs> is there is there one guy? We really need to move to the next level of the TV commentator. Is there one TV guy who kind of gets it more than anyone else? No. No. <laughs> Honestly, 
No. no. The TV guys we like, in general, are because they're good with film, right? right. I mean, I like Mayock, Mayock and I right. like Jaworski, mm-hmm. and Brian Billick is good. But, but those guys don't understand advanced stats. Well, they I'm... just understand film a lot better than the other commentators, and that means that they're not... They're not going to put up with conventional wisdom nonsense they don't see on film. But they don't know advanced stats. Kevin Harlan knows advanced stats, but he's a play-by-play guy, so he right. doesn't use them very much. You know, uh, it's hard for him to sneak that stuff in. He, he, does, uh, he does more of it when he sneaks it into his NBA broadcast. Um, listen, I, I'm, I'm being selfish here by saying this, <laughs> but I truly believe that the time has come for them to put one of us in the studio show, and I have volunteered myself. Yeah, you know, hey. I mean, uh, I am a former radio personality. I do have television experience, and I do think that it would be a lot more interesting to people if instead of five ex-athletes, right. <laughs> there were four ex-athletes and one stat guy. But man, they don't have to make it me. They can make it, you know, Mike, if they want someone who's funny. Funnier than me, anyway. Well, you, uh, if you want to use me, there's the probably reference. other people out there who are who are uh, you know qualified. Certainly on the stats end of things. Uh, I just think, man, you know, you can only hear so many ex athletes tell you about how it feels in the locker room before it's just repetitive. It, it's not that that angle is not important. You've got to have that angle, but you just don't need to have it five times. Well, I'm sure that the hire of Brady Quinn will solve all of those problems. This is probably the newest analyst hired for NFL games, right? Wasn't that just last week? Did, he, did Brady Quinn get hired? Yeah, he's going to be like on the know. last Fox team. Looking forward to Tim Tebow doing SEC games, I guess. <laughs> Thank you so I much mean, for... Oh, sorry. It, it's, not, it's not in the booth. Listen, I'll say it's not... Look, because in the booth you only have two guys. Right. Right? So I understand in the booth you don't have... I, I'm saying for a pregame show. Right. I'm and saying instead of, of having six... You know, five right. ex-athletes in Chris Berman... Have four ex athletes in Chris Berman, a stack guy. Another Brown Iron guy. Chase, if you want. Doesn't have to be me. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you want to get out uh, plug wise that I didn't get to? I didn't want to leave anything out because you gave me a ton of time. Yeah. Not only do we do the, uh, the book, we also do these fantasy projections, uh, the Kubiak fantasy projections, so called because Gary Kubiak's name sounds like a 50s mainframe computer. <laughs> and. Uh, this year, we have this deal with DraftKings, which is one of those daily fantasy sites, that if you do a $10 first-time deposit on DraftKings, you get our $20 projections absolutely free. So I definitely encourage people to go to Football Outsiders and check that out. It's a pretty good deal. And if you combine that with the book, you end up being able to get both the book and the projections for 11 bucks. Awesome. Thank you so much for all the time. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. All right. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Aaron. Shots from FootballOutsiders.com for joining us, talking a little bit of football, and continue that trend here on 5 on Fantasy today. And uh, I said to Don, we have to do a few things on 5 on Fantasy. One is we got to talk about the Listener League, and 
I think what we're going to do is I'm going to email people that were in the league last year. And I'm going to give you about a week or two to get back to me. If they want to be in again. If you want to be in again. And if you don't, uh, I'd prefer you tell me you don't. Because <laughs> I do have people who want to be in. Uh, then once I know, like right around before the wedding probably, I'll start emailing people that want to be in and letting them know they have a spot. And then what I think we're going to do is we're going to have the draft, uh, whatever night it is that we do that last podcast the before the record. season okay. starts. Right? So if we're going to do it on Wednesday or if we're going to do it on Tuesday, we'll let you know as we get closer. But uh, I guess that's probably what we'll do for the Listener League. Makes sense. Um, so look for those emails if you were in it. And if you've contacted me looking for a spot, you'll probably get one. Uh, I think we'll probably have three or four, maybe four or five spots turnover. And we can always go to a 12-team league if we need to as oh, well. Oh, that's right. It is 10, isn't it? Yeah. So we still got some space there where we could grow a bit. So that's the listener league. And then I said the other thing I want to do is how about some over-unders? Let's do three each, throw them out to each other, and uh, see what we think. Get some opinions going. All right. I'll give you one first. I'm kind of curious if any of these overlap because I picked them based on who we are. Uh, my first one is Sammy Watkins. Okay. If he had 60 catches, 800 yards, and six TDs, that would equal 176 points in a point per reception league. That'd be pretty high. Uh, if you take away the 60 catches, that's 116 points in a standard league. That's not all that high. That would probably place him around 30th or so. So I'm just going to say over under 176 points in a PPR league. That would be based on the original stat line you gave me? 6,806 TDs. So, I mean... It has to be over. Because... I just... Who else is... I mean, I like Robert Woods. I think I think that would be like about Robert Woods' stat line. Maybe not six touchdowns. Touchdowns are so hard to predict. No, I know. But I would think Robert Woods would be the 6,800 guy, and they need Watkins to be the 80,000 guy. Yeah, I, I think they would hope that... Uh, it, Rookie receivers to have numbers that good, it's fairly rare. Is it? So that's why I kind of... He's supposedly a pretty rare talent, That's right? true. So, yeah, I would hope it's over that as well. I have to go over there. All right. But we'll see. Yep. Uh, I have a over-under receiver one as well. So I always wonder about these Bears guys. Right. Yeah. I've been wondering a lot about the Bears offense in general. Because everyone is just all in on the Bears. People love Cutler this year, Forte. love Forte, yep. and obviously are excited about Jeffrey and Marshall. So let's put it at 2,700 yards receiving combined, over or under, because that is a shitload. That's 1,300 and 1,400 yards essentially. Wow. I figured that's 1,350 each, and that's about what you would expect out of a wide receiver that you're drafting in the first late first, early second, and that's where these guys, both of their ADPs is. Right, and the way a good quarterback is measured this year, like maybe I should say better than good, like a, a very good quarterback year is 4,000 yards 4, 000, or so. Because, yeah. I mean, you got quarterbacks blowing up 5,000. Breeze has had four straight 5,000-yard seasons. There's been eight of them Stafford had one. Someone was like three yards off of it or something crazy too. So, I mean, 5,000 is the mark of like excellence. But So, I mean, 1,000 yards less than that. And 2,700 just for the two receivers. Boy, I got to say they're under that. But it's probably a pretty good number. It, 
they can't be too far under it, but I basically said thirteen fifty each. Yeah, and you need that if you're going to draft draft a guy, right? If you're going to draft Brandon Marshall at the twelfth pick or Elshon Jeffrey with the fourteenth or vice versa, I mean that's what you're expecting, right? I'm I'm going to probably proceed into the Bears' offense with a little bit of caution this year. Yeah, I think I still like Brandon Marshall a lot from a PPR perspective. He's a guy that'll catch eight balls on a good day, so. Jeffrey, I think, is a little bit more of the guy that might have a tougher time repeating his Well, I'm going to be less cautious about Marshall because he's done it more than once. That's We've true. still too. only seen right. Jeffrey do it once. Yeah, and Forte catches a lot of balls, too. So that's that's kind of why I think that 27 it might be a little high because they do get a lot of receptions out of the backfield and some from their tight ends. But that's probably, like you said, that's about what you're going to need to draft it. I'm, I'm guessing... If the if the question is is Alshon Jeffrey getting overdrafted this year, I'd probably say yeah a little bit. Like I probably won't end up with him on my teams. All right, my next one is should, I guess is probably going to be an easy one asking you, but I figured Drew Brees five thousand passing yards. Oh, you know it's so tough because there's only been eight five thousand yard passing seasons ever. Brees has four of them, right? And he's had three in a row. The only thing is to say under would mean that I expect there to be a decline in Drew Brees' production, and I just don't. I think he has a better offense around him this year. Left tackle is gonna is a much stronger position than it was last year. I think he's going to get hit less. He's got more time. Uh, Brandon Cooks is going to make the wide receivers just better. You know, Jimmy Graham is signed and happy. And even if they try to run more and create balance, still running to the Saints often is a pass. Like sure. People will say the Saints never run it, but sometimes they just throw to run. Do you know Pierre Thomas led the league in receptions Yeah, he last had 80, year? right? That's insane. Yeah. Well, and he led the, the running backs. Running backs, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'm going to say over. I just I don't think there's any reason to expect less from Breeze than we've been getting in the last few years. Uh, but 5,000 is a huge number. Yeah, I probably wouldn't ask it for any quarterback but him, just yeah. because he compiles those yards every year. All right, uh Marshawn Lynch is a really interesting case this year. Uh, it might fall into the category for me of a guy I'm just probably not going to draft. Yeah. But if he plays, here's the thing about Marshawn Lynch. He's probably going to average four yards a carry, mm-hmm. right? So over under 250 carries for Marshawn Lynch this year. Wow. I mean, that's almost it's kind of betting on an injury, right? And unless they really like Christian Michael. Well, it's betting on the produ- it's I'm wanting, I'm forcing you to bet on whether or not you think this guy's going to be productive this year cuz he needs 250 carries to get to 1000 yards. To get to 1000 cuz he's if you look at his stats, he's essentially a 4 yards per carry guy. Right. And his best seasons are when he has like last season he had about 300 carries. Yeah, I think he falls in that. What is that magic number for running backs? That's not a great number if you're a fantasy like 270 or something. He's had like three straight seasons with over 270 carries. So I don't love Marshawn Lynch this year, especially as the fifth overall running back or overall player or wherever he's being drafted. But if you ask me if I think he's going to run for 1,000 yards this year, I would say yes. So I guess I have to say yes to 250 carries. But that said, if your first overall draft pick in fantasy football has 1,000 yards and 10 touchdowns, that's not good enough. So uh, at least, I mean, that might be safe, but it's not probably going to win you a league he's had 285 carries or more every season in seattle that's three straight seasons yeah that's that's really that's 
That's a pounding. He's so, averaged 4.25 and 4.2 yards a carry in those seasons. Five is by far his highest average uh, yards per carry. He's had one, two, 5,000 yard seasons. And in those seasons, he's averaged four, 4.1, 4.2, 4.2, and five yards per wow. carry. You know, <laughs> I'm going to change my answer, I think. I, I still think he gets 1,000 yards somehow but I don't see him getting 250 carries. I just don't think they're going to want to do that to him again. All right, my last one I saw on Twitter. You proclaimed that you thought Sam Bradford would have a bit of a breakout season. Currently, ESPN has him drafted or has him ranked as the 26th overall quarterback. So essentially undraftable, yeah. Yeah. Uh, My question is, is he a top 18 quarterback at the end of the year? And I picked 18 because I figured that makes him – an upper echelon backup in a 12-team league. Because right now they don't even have him as a draftable player. And I didn't want to say top 10 because that's probably really unrealistic. Right. You know, here's the thing about Bradford. And when I you respond to that tweet, you know, yeah, maybe, but it might not matter because that division is, you know, very difficult. I and mean, they can go in six in that division. And very crowded. But it was very difficult last year, and he played – he basically played seven games. Right, he got hurt in the seventh game, and he had fourteen touchdowns and four interceptions. Wow! And they they played their divisional games really tough too. At least so, the San Francisco games, from what I remember. You know, he didn't have a three hundred yard game, but he did have three three touchdown games out of seven, uh, and he had one, two, three, four of the seven. He had sixteen fantasy points or more. Huh. So I just don't know why you would project someone like... Well, E.J. Manuel might be one of them that ESPN has higher than him, which I think is crazy. Yeah, I, I, I will, I, my answer to you is over. I, so I think... He'll finish as a top... Eight, well, I guess if I'm saying 18, so he'll be in the set, top 17 quarterback. I think that's right about right. Yeah. I think he'll be between 18 and 15 somewhere. I think he's right around uh, Ben Roethlisberger, Andy Dalton, Tony Romo type. Area. I mean, he essentially needs to be this year, right? I mean, if, if he yeah, if he's not, he probably isn't going to be their quarterback next year, right? And if he's not, I wouldn't mind the. And if EJ is not going to be the Bills' quarterback next year, I wouldn't mind them going after Bradford. You know, he might be the kind of guy that just is going to be better on his second, second team. team. Yeah, but he's got another chance to be good on this team, so we'll see how it goes. All right, all right. Last one, pretty similar and right around the same area. Uh, Johnny Manziel. Uh, right now is 23rd on ESPN, and he's projected for 156 points. Now, I went and looked at what the How 20th quarterback oh, would okay. be, and they project the 20th quarterback to be 210 points. So I was wondering if you think Manziel will score over or under 210 points, thus essentially asking you if in a non-dynasty league you think Johnny Manziel is draftable. Um... See what I did there? Uh, 210 points would project him as 20th. So if every p- player in a two-quarterback or a one-quarterback 10-team league drafted a backup, he'd be the last backup. Sure. And he wouldn't even be a terrible one. At 210 points divided by, whatever, 16 games, that's not bad. And maybe he doesn't even play 16. Maybe he plays 13. Yeah. I think that's high still, though. I, I don't know. I don't want any part of him. If I'm drafting today, I'm not touching him. I know that's a cop-out, but, I mean, you're asking me the question today. 
I don't even know that he's going to be the starter week one. So there's no way I'm drafting a guy to back up my quarterback that I might. I don't want to have to waste a free agent. However you do free agency. I don't want to waste that one week having to replace my backup quarterback because he's not playing. Unless he, I mean, obviously the injuries are a thing, but yeah, I just don't think I'd touch him. I'd rather have a backup that like uh, Alex Smith or somebody like that, that I know is going to be the guy. He's going to be a safe pick, but I don't know. Does drafting a rookie quarterback that ends up blowing up really save your season? Maybe once in a while, like with RG3, had that monster rookie year. But no, I, I'm going to say he's he's pretty much unownable. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with Phil Taylor. Our next guest is from Queens, New York, and is a graduate of Amherst College. He went on to earn a master's degree from Stanford University. After college, he began his career as a sports writer and columnist for the Miami Herald, the San Jose Mercury News, and the now-defunct sports daily, The National. He's a world-class writer that has won many journalism awards, including the 1987 Associated Press Sports Editors Award for feature writing. In 1990, he joined Sports Illustrated, where today he is a senior writer and often the author of the famed Backpage column. He's making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the esteemed and talented Phil Taylor. How are you doing today, Mr. Taylor? Uh, I'm doing well. How are you? Very good. Sorry, I couldn't find the Amherst College fight song, so I had to go with the grad school fight song there. <laughs> I can sing it for you if you want. But you probably don't. So I think that's, that's one okay. we can we can sort of all sing because it's actually a, a a song by the band Free, correct? All right now. That is right. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. And yes. there is actually an Amherst College fight song that is not nearly as cool as All Right Now. So we won't we won't get too deeply into that one. <laughs> I uh, I think uh, the last time you were on was December of 2012, so quite a while, and that's probably just my mm-hmm. fault. I don't know why I haven't reached out since then. Uh, but I was sitting the other day uh, just reading the, the Sports Illustrated that had come in the mail. And I was, I always, it's just a habit since the days of, really since I started subscribing to the magazine, I always open it to the back first because um, mm-hmm. it's just an easy way to get started. You know, it's, a nice, it's always a nice, easy, quality column on the back page there. And I was reading your thoughts on the Ray Rice suspension. I had just talked about mm-hmm. it with Jason Lock and Fora the day before. And uh, mm-hmm. I figured I'd get you on it and talk to you about it. And the first thing that jumped out to me that I was curious to ask you about is uh, almost everyone has been pretty unanimous, unanimously critical of the two-game suspension that was handed out in the league by the league. In your column, mm-hmm. you suggested a six-week suspension. Sort of, you said sort of minimally. That was kind of your your uh, your recommendation. How did you how did you come to that? Why why do you think what we've seen? Uh, do you think that if it would have been a six-game suspension, the outrage would be less? And why do you think that number would have satisfied us as fans of the league? I, I do think that if it had been at least six, the outrage would have been less. There still would have been some. There's, there are people who think he should have been banned for a season or half a season, and I, I'm not really prepared to argue that. That's 
I think that's, that's a valid uh, a valid position to take. But I think the feeling was that four games seems to be the kind of average suspension. Particularly, that's what we've seen for a lot of the the steroid and marijuana um, offenses. We've seen four games, and I think the feeling was it's got to be more than that because obviously domestic violence is is you know a greater offense. It's a greater uh, you know, outrage causes greater outrage among people. I think that was the feeling that it had to be more than the four that players get for most drug offenses. So if they got if they gone to six, I think um, most people would have been satisfied. They may not have loved it. There certainly were those who want more, but I thought that six was a was a nice minimum number. I thought you know, my, really, I thought what should have happened was Roger Goodell should have met with Ray Rice and he should have said to him. Tell me why I shouldn't suspend you for half a season for eight games. And then when Rice makes his his pitch and says, um, because this is my first offense, I've been a, a model citizen uh, up until now. Um, I've shown remorse for for my actions. I'm in a in a an intervention program, an, an anger management program. All these things are in my favor. Then then I think that Goodell says, okay, instead of eight. Because of these mitigating circumstances, I will knock it down to six. I think that would have made right. more sense than than starting with two. I, I just thought there's no no real rationale for that. So yeah, I think six games would have been um, uh, a number that could have satisfied everyone, including Ray Rice. I don't think he would have really argued or even tried to appeal if they uh, give him six games. Yeah, actually, Jason Lockin Forrest said on the show last year that some of the people in the Rice camp, so to speak, uh, were expecting at least four and sort of, I don't want to say wanted four, but kind of the way he put it was that the commissioner sort of put him even with a two-game suspension in a position where now the perception is going forward that he hasn't he hasn't paid the price for what he did and you know he didn't serve any jail time, he's got the suspended sentence or whatever pending his completion of the program and so people don't think maybe he was punished correctly by the law, and now there's this perception he wasn't even punished correctly by the league. So I, uh, yeah, right. I was going to say that's a great point. I think in some ways, Goodell did not do Ray Rice any favors because now Rice is seen as not only the guy who uh, abused his wife, but the guy who kind of got away with it, got off lightly with it, and that that makes people, you know, obviously mad at Goodell, but it doesn't it doesn't put him in a better light for people either. It, it hurts his public perception. I think you know when you look at a guy. You know, not necessarily to put these two offenses together. It's always dangerous to compare things. But Michael Vick, at least you could say, he served his time. Uh, how horrible his offense was. He went to a federal penitentiary and served his time. And I think people, most people felt as though he, he was punished, um, to, at least close to appropriately. I don't think, I think the feeling with Rice is he kind of got away with it, got off lightly. And I, I think that will make it even harder for him to uh, repair his own image in the in the public's mind. Yeah, and another thing you touched on in the column, which I which I, I really agreed with, was you talked about sort of the commissioner's attitude and the way he's kind of come across uh, in terms of perception in speaking about this or even not speaking about it initially, where he just sort of issued a statement. And um, it sort of reminded me of Jonathan Vilma, who uh, had said that when he met with the commissioner after his suspension, he said, you know, the commissioner had said to him that his evidence was that the Saints had a bounty on Warner and Favre, but not on Manning, and that uh, Vilma had argued, you know, if we were implementing this program, why would we stop it 
uh, right before the Super Bowl and uh, in the biggest game against arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. And, you know, at that point, and one thing I think Vilma expressed a few times, is any time we sort of would make a point on our side, the commissioner's attitude would just change to, well, I'm the commissioner and we're just going to have to agree to disagree and you have to walk the line that the commissioner puts out. But yet, in his interview the other day, he said, I can't just make up these suspensions. But isn't your feeling that he does just make up these suspensions? Yeah, that's exactly what my feeling is. I, I, I really couldn't believe it when he said, I, I can't just make up these punishments, this discipline. Yeah, yeah, I, I tweeted, uh, uh, tweeted it out. But isn't that exactly what he did with Bounty Gate with the Saints? I mean, there, we've never seen a coach suspended for a season before and, and all the things that he did and, and he, you know, not some of them were overturned, but he really, he, he clearly acted with complete impunity and felt as though he could impose any penalty that he wanted. And so I don't know why he suddenly is so timid now saying that he can't go against precedent and we, you know, we have to kind of stay consistent with the penalties we've done in the past. That to me seemed like just an empty defense and, and one that was, was easily shot down. So, but it's it's really been um, kind of mind-boggling the entire way that, that Goodell has handled this. I mean, I thought it was tremendously arrogant for him not to even bother to give a press conference or, or you know speak you know in public uh, when he when he came down with the with the suspension. Um, I think his you know his rationale that, that he finally did give was was very weak, and I think the way he handled it was uh, you know um, in terms of. Uh, taking into account uh, Rice's wife's defense uh, of him and uh, many other, you know, kind of points along the way in coming up with this decision showed, like, a, a real lack of understanding of kind of whole dynamic of domestic violence. And, you know, I, I wonder, and, and no one's really been able to ask him this because he hasn't really consented to very many questions. I wonder to what extent he had the domestic violence experts uh consulted um while he was was coming up with all of this it's just the whole thing was was very strange but um yeah going back to the uh to the to the defense of uh, i can't just make up punishments that's that's so easily shot down i can't believe he even offered it up as a as a rationale yeah and you know uh it makes it seem so transparent too <laughs> like when you look at and you said it if you don't want to mix these things it's it's a slippery slope but I always thought that when the Bounty Gate stuff came down, it was, look, at we're in this litigation based on player safety right now, and this is a player safety issue, so I have to come down so firm that it looks like nothing troubles the league more than things that work against our players' safety. And then just a few years later, there's an issue, a social issue, where he could have come down again and made this statement that nothing concerns the league more than this social issue that the women we we look out for our women fans we spend the whole month of October with with uh you know pink changes to our uniforms and and things like that and yet it just made him look so bad in the sense that it opened up this like transparent view back to the league of all you are is a bottom line league and you only did the stuff you did for Bounty Gate so that you could say it in future litigation. Did you did you get that impression at all? Or am I making a huge jump there? Uh, totally. No, I think you're right on with that. I think it was definitely kind of politically motivated. The the, uh, the severity with which he came down on the Saints, you know, it definitely had a great deal to do um, with the fact that the league was under fire and and, and facing litigation over the uh, 
of a concussion um, situation. And, uh, you know, and so you, I think you're exactly right that Goodell felt that, you know, he really kind of had to make an example of the Saints. He had to show for, for you know, legal purposes maybe going forward that they really took this seriously and that, you know, player safety was, you know, tremendously like a paramount issue. And so it comes to domestic violence, to violence against women, and they had a chance to show the same thing, that, they, that it was a paramount issue, that it was something they would not tolerate. But there's no, you know, there's no hammer hanging over their head with, uh, over the NFL's head with, uh, with domestic violence. There's nobody threatening lawsuits, although, you know, who knows? There, there may be something if, uh, uh, coming out of this. But, um, but you know, they, they had, there's, there's really no motivation for them to show that this was something that they would not tolerate. And it really goes to, you know, the, the, the attitudes towards violence against women that are still prevalent, that is still not taken as seriously as it ought to be, and not even not even by a, a, a huge uh, a corporation like the NFL. And I would go even one step farther that I, I, I and I really, in after writing the column uh, a few days later, I thought I wish I had written gone even farther, and I, I may write another column maybe for, for the, our website. But where is the outrage from the players? It, it really, I think, I think about as I mentioned the column, the Donald Sterling situation, and how just visibly angered Adam Silver was when he announced the ban of Sterling. And and the players themselves were, I mean, they were talking about boycotting right. and not not signing with the Clippers and not coming back next season unless Sterling was out and all these things. And they were they were almost to a man, just seething mad. And here you have Ray Rice abusing a woman, and there's not, none of that outrage from players. There's there's only well, he's a great guy. He made a mistake, and we support him. And you know, it doesn't mean we condone it. And you know, and they welcome him back, you know, with open arms. And and I, I just feel as though what Ray Rice did is every bit as bad as what Donald Sterling did, but it doesn't get the the players nearly as upset. And I I just I find that interesting. I think it kind of maybe reflects the entire um, attitude, the male attitude towards violence against women. Yeah, we don't we don't think it's good, and we don't respect the guy who does it. But if we know the guy, it's it's kind of okay. And I I think that's uh, that's that's something that the players maybe need to be called out on a little bit more than they have been. A couple more things on this. Well, one last thought on the league, and one last thought about Ray Rice. You know, the league kind of. I think Commissioner Goodell in the league in general is in a position right now to be arrogant. Uh, their franchises, you know, are, are worth a billion dollars or more. I think the initial bids on the bills were almost one and a half billion dollars. You know, their TV deals are huge amounts, more than any other sport. I mean, it, it is the ultimate pro sports league right now. But if this was a hundred years ago, we'd be talking about box, boxing, horse racing, and baseball as the huge sports in America, and almost none of them are relevant anymore. Uh, do you think that the NFL is in danger? Do you think that the NFL right now is building a haystack that someday the proverbial needle could break? Do you think there is a breaking point uh, with this league, or uh, do you think that uh, their arrogance is justified? Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, there may be a breaking point, and, uh, but I I don't think they're getting close to it yet. I mean, I think if the NFL goes the way of, of some of those sports you mentioned, like horse racing and boxing, it's going to be a, a long time down the road. I think there's still, uh, I, I, 
I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, I think they do have the luxury of being arrogant here because, um, you know, I, to some degree, I, I think uh, the commissioner's attitude may have been, you know, even when the, the heat, the, the backlash for the, the week suspension came, I think the feeling is kind of, it, it'll pass, you know. As soon as, pre, as soon as training camp starts and some, some preseason starts and we see some guys hitting, people will, will kind of move on from this. And I tend to think that that's the case. Um, I, you know, I, I would, I would like to say that they are taking a chance and they're they're on uh, kind of like losing this, you know, stranglehold they have on on American interest. But I don't think we're close to it yet. I really do think that, you know, after Ray Rice is back for a couple games, it will be business as usual. The NFL will keep on making money hand over fist for the foreseeable future. One last thing on Ray Rice, you know, almost no matter what happens from this point forward, when the day comes and his obituary is written, it almost seems like this is going to be first paragraph stuff. Even if we look at Michael Vick, despite all the things he's done to rebuild his image to a point, it seems like no matter what, in the end, the predominant thing we're going to look back on, or one of them, is his issue with the dogs. But if you were Ray Rice uh, going forward, uh, what would you do? What would you do from here on in? Like, what does a guy like Ray Rice do now? I and mean, we've already said the league hasn't done him any favors. Maybe the criminal justice system hasn't done any favors to him. But what can he do? Uh, this is a guy who has been said in New Rochelle, New York, where he's from, to uh, be a pillar of the community. Uh, Jason Lockenford, who I said we talked to last week, is in Baltimore. So there's so many great things this guy does for the community that people know about and even more that he, we don't know about. So we know there is a good guy there. Uh, at some at some point, what can you do from this point forward uh, in your mind? Well, I think he can maybe take uh, follow Vic's model a little bit, as you say. Uh, Vic Vic has never you know, completely erased that stain, and he never will. It will be you know that first paragraph of his obituary. But what Vic has done, <clears throat> one is that he has done work uh, you know with uh, organizations that uh, prevent cruelty towards animals. He's you know, he, but he hasn't overdone it. He hasn't made, you know, got done a big uh, PR campaign of it. But he has done enough of it. And then the other thing Vic did is just play and play well. And I, I tend to think that those are sort of the two things that, uh, that Rice would probably have to do or should do. Is number one, find a way to, you know, to make a significant uh, contribution, and not, not monetary, but in terms of time and, and effort, to um, the prevention of violence against women, to find organizations that he can work with and and really make uh, some sort of uh, some sort of contribution. And, but beyond that, I think um, you know that the thing about about our love of sports and our love of NFL is if you can play, we tend to forgive you to some degree. And I, I think for him, um, and this is a question that we don't know how much he has left as a as an NFL running back. But I, I think for him, mostly it's. You know, continuing to make it clear that he has remorse, working in some way off the off the field uh, with domestic violence issues, and then just playing at a high level. Those those are really the only things that he can that he can really do. Anything else, I think, would be seen as as insincere and and too much of an effort. You know, you can't be seen as trying too hard. I think you just have to kind of uh, go out and play football. As as simple and maybe cliche as that sounds. The sportscasters are here with Phil Taylor, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's been really active on Twitter uh, the last few weeks at SI underscore Phil Taylor, and we mentioned his uh, most recent back page column in the fantasy football edition, sort of, of the uh, Sports Illustrated 
Uh, I think LaShawn McCoy was the national cover, and there was maybe a regional one with uh, Eddie Lacy and a few other people. Uh, a couple other things I want to talk to you about more briefly before I let you go. The first thing is uh, I want to get your thoughts on, uh, on Tony Dungy and what your initial impressions were when you heard his comments about Michael Sam to the reporter from Tampa Bay and uh, what you think the long-term effects on Tony's reputation, which has been one of the more revered and and uh, almost clean reputations in all of the NFL. Uh, what were your thoughts on that when you heard it and, and going forward? Well, I wasn't surprised by it. I think, you know, most people knew that, uh, that Tony is a, is a very devout man and that uh, he does not agree, as he would put it, with um, uh, homosexuality um, for religious reasons. And, and that's, his, that's his right. Um, I was disappointed that he said he would not have drafted Michael Sam. Um, and and I, I do think that that hurt his standing uh, with, with a lot of people around the country. Um, I think that uh, the, the thing about, about Dungy is that he, I think he shows that you can be a good person or you know, what most of us would consider to be a good person in, a, in many, many different ways, but yet you know, there, there can be issues on which you know, we would disagree. And that's, that's how I feel about Dungeon. I think he's an admirable man in, in so many different ways, but I, I, I do not admire, and I, I think he was, um, I, I think he did damage to Michael Sam um, by saying what he did. I don't, I don't think that had to be said. And I also think that his defense, again, so many times the defense of these sorts of things makes the person look worse than the, than the original action. I thought the way he said that, you know, it kind of the, the reporter didn't ask him the right questions, and he, and, and he said that he, he, the comments he made were during the time that the Oprah documentary was being considered when it doesn't seem as though that's actually the case. I, I, I I almost wish he would have just owned it and just said, hey, this is the way I feel, and I know it's not going to make me popular with a lot of people, and I know Michael Sam doesn't like it, but um, but that's the way I feel. I, I thought the fact that he kind of ran from it a little bit um, was almost as as, uh, as disappointing to me as the, as the original comments. I wonder if maybe he ran from it to some degree because we're just sort of in this era of I don't know if fake outrage is too strong, but it almost seems like we we have this culture of like this is the way it has to be now, and if you're not inside of this and you're willing to speak on it, you're gonna get killed by the the I don't even know how to put this, but shouldn't it, maybe it's simple as this shouldn't it be okay to some degree uh for Tony Dungy to to feel that way. I mean, we don't have to agree with him, but shouldn't it be okay for there to be other opinions on these social issues? It sort of seems like we're to the point where socially we all feel like everyone has to be on the same side. And if they're not, we're getting on this boat and we're leaving you back there. Yes. I mean, sure. It should be okay to have different viewpoints about about any, any social issue. Yes. That's, that's that's the American way, and and yeah, he he has every right to feel the way he feels, and, and to say how he feels. I think though, the thing about it is, is that when he, you know, if he if he had come out five years ago and said he, you know, he didn't think gay players should be in the NFL, that's one thing. But I, I thought what he did was he made it harder for that individual, for Michael Sam, right. because he said I wouldn't take him because 
it would cause you know all, all of this hoopla and the, and the media attention, which which Dungey himself is is generating by by saying it. I I thought it was just unfair, not not because of the way he felt about the issue, but because of what he did to that guy, to that one player. You know, that's he's the, that's the only gay player, openly gay player in the league, and he just made it more difficult for him. He just added one more layer of. Uh, of resistance, and and I, I just didn't think that that was that that's not that that just isn't right. You know, if, if he doesn't, if he, I I don't think he needed to say that. You know, I don't think he needed to make Michael Sam's situation harder than it already is. Whether he whether he had, you know likes you know, what, whatever his his feelings about homosexuality are, you know, and he said he he thinks the guy deserves to have a chance, but he wouldn't have given him one. So if he deserves to have a chance, let let him have it. Let him have a real chance without without throwing up obstacles in his way. That was my problem, Dungey. Right, and I, I think neither of us could put words in his mouth. But if I was sort of interpreting what he said, it sort of made it sort of made me feel like he was sort of saying, "Look, if this is was Sammy Watkins, uh, I would probably consider it more." It was almost like he was saying the player right. wasn't worth the trouble. Did you get that impression right. to some degree? Right. Right, yeah, and I don't I know did. if that makes I it. Then I, I think that might be what sort of makes it worse—that he was sort of singling out that guy. Right, right, right. Because by, and again, and by doing that, you're saying that well, being gay is a negative, and and you can, if you're good enough, if you have enough positives, if you're Sammy Watkins or someone like that, you have enough positives that it outweighs that negative. But if you're not, you know, if you're not a stud, then it doesn't outweigh the negative, and and you know, so you're you really haven't made any real progress oh, if you're you know if you're saying that uh um okay we'll 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 overlook a person's uh homosexuality if he's good enough you know it's it's still you're still attaching the stigma to it and still making it more difficult a couple of weeks ago we were very lucky enough uh to have John Wertheim on the show uh John has been a, a great a big part of the show for a long time as almost the whole Sports Illustrated family has. And he, he was nice enough to come in just after uh, Lee broke the story on, on on LeBron James and kind of go through from an editor's point what went into that and how Sports Illustrated had been a part of that. And, and further in that discussion, we kind of talked about Sports Illustrated in the 21st century uh, as Sports Illustrated tries to go from a strictly uh, print magazine to a digital platform that has not only a magazine but a iPad version and uh, a web presence and podcasts and Twitter and all that stuff and he gave his view of how it's going as an editor and I'm just curious as a writer how do you think Sports Illustrated is doing uh, making that transition and maybe specifically what do you think has worked really well and maybe what do you think still needs work? Well I think you know I, I say in the last last couple of years um, SI, I, I think we've kind of figured it out to some degree. I think we struggled with it for a while um, with the new landscape, the new media landscape, and uh, where we, we weren't really quite sure what kinds of stories we wanted to write. You know, we, we weren't quite sure whether we wanted to kind of change with the times and, and keep up with the you know the fast pace and and write shorter, quicker stories and 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 emphasize the website and and maybe de-emphasize the magazine. And then I, I, or whether we wanted to become like the New Yorker of sports, of sports journalism, and kind of go with, uh, you know, our our more our longer form, well considered pieces, and and not try to 
to keep up with the uh, ESPNification of the world. And I, and I think we've kind of tr- figured it out now that um, what, we're, what we try to do, and I, if, I think John would agree, is um, write stories that are memorable to people and, and not necessarily the quick, you know, four-page story about, you know, when the Houston Rockets win nine in a row and go spend a week and write a quick story about them. And, and um, you know, some of the things that guys like like, uh, like Chris Ballard and, have, have done the longer pieces, I think those are the ones that resonate with people and and, uh, and we're more willing to put multiple stories like that in, a, in any one issue of the magazine. So I think we've been, I think the transi- transition to that type of magazine has worked well for us. I don't know what the numbers are as a writer. I don't pay that much attention to, uh, you know, the profit and loss and the, and the circulation numbers. But, uh, but I, the sense I get is that, that we're writing stories that people tend to remember and, and, and retweet on, on Twitter and, and kind of share with people. Um, so I think that's, that's worked well. And, and um, you know, as far as things that, that haven't gone as well, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, things that I can point to that have just been, you know, mistakes. I, I don't think. Um, I think um, we've been we've been pretty smart, and uh, Chris Stone and John have been, uh, you know, kind of like laid a, a, a path for the magazine and for the entire um, organization that that makes sense now. You know, I would say for someone like me who you know I've been at SI for, uh, gosh, twenty four years, and uh, I've yeah, I'm still kind of in the process of maybe reinventing myself a little bit because I wrote a lot of those stories in covering the NBA during the Jordan years. Those those stories where you go out and spend a few days and write a, write a story about a hot team or a, or a, or an emerging player. And um, I'm starting now to have to 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 think about stories in a different way and and looking for stories that have a, a good narrative that are good longer form pieces in addition to writing the column. So um, you know, it's kind of you know, stretch, stretching some muscles for me. So it's been, it's been good. But I, I, I do think that the magazine overall has, has just in the last couple of years maybe figured out who we want to be. And, um, and I think we're, we're actually doing a pretty good job of uh, being who we want to be. Yeah, you mentioned Chris Ballard, and I was really excited to see the great response that his skydiving piece that ran in the magazine one or two issues ago mm-hmm. has gotten on the Internet. Because that's just an example of, of something that, maybe you wouldn't think fits nowadays a really long piece about an obscure sport like skydiving. But I think that piece is an example of a really talented guy writing a really memorable piece and us sort of remembering that, wow, this still works because it has really gotten a great response. Yes, it has. And, you know, and, you know, Lee Jenkins has written, you know, you know, countless great, great NBA features, uh, you know, similarly, and and I think you're right. And what we're finding is that um, if if we once now that we're kind of reestablishing that that's who we are, I think people give those stories a chance. Are more likely to give those stories a chance. Like you know, I think uh, there might have been a time when if you see a story in, in the back of Sports Illustrated about skydiving, you might just keep keep on going. But I think once we now that we've reestablished that we can that those stories. If you see a story that kind of seems kind of off the beaten path and a little odd to you at first, you, maybe readers now will tend to think it's probably going to be pretty good. If, if SI is doing it, if, if a writer like Chris Ballard or Lee Jenkins or whoever else, you know, any of our other stable of really great writers, if their bylines on it, if they felt it was worth writing length at this length about it, I'm, I'm going to give it a chance. And I think that's where 
that's where we can still set ourselves apart as a magazine. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think the response to, to Chris's story is a great example of of, the, of how it seems to be working for, for Sports Illustrated right now. All right. Well, Phil Taylor, uh, thank you so much for that. He's at SI underscore Phil Taylor on Twitter. Like I said, he's been pretty active uh, the last couple of weeks or so. I've noticed his uh, his name on my timeline a little bit more, it seems like. And as we talked about his column that was in last week's magazine, uh, so that means it should be online maybe this week. I, I know sometimes they delay them, sometimes they don't. But I will definitely tweet a link when I see it uh, available online. And if you don't want to wait for that, the magazine is out on stands now. Uh, thank you so much for doing this and, and doing it for so long. And, and next time when you're on, which I know will be a shorter gap than this last time, we maybe will have to take you up on the singing of the all right now. So. <laughs> all right. I'll, uh, I'll uh, start uh, warming up right now. <laughs> all right. right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. All right, I want to thank Aaron Schatz and Phil Taylor for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find out all of our shows, including last week's with Jason Lackenfora and Jeremy Taggart, at www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we're facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. If you're in the listeners league, I'll be emailing you from the NFL.com website there or however you do it from that sure, site yeah, yeah. Uh, please respond one way or another and uh, if you've contacted me as a few of you have uh, looking for a spot I'll be inviting you to one of our empty spots real soon uh, we're going to shoot for that uh, draft being probably the Wednesday before the first Thursday of the su- football season so I'd be like the third second or the third yeah something like that uh, let's see um that's it. Go ahead. All right. One last thing for me this week. Uh, it's probably going to be a little rambly, and then I'll just cut myself off when I think I s- stops being interesting. But uh, not an overwhelming take or anything this week. But this is a weird part of the summer for me because, on the one hand, like logically, there's like a third of the summer left, but it also feels like it's already gone. Like every Saturday for me in August is already planned out, so it feels like that's going to fly by, and. Uh, that part sucks. I mean, if you live in Buffalo, there's like summer and then it rains and then it's winter and then it rains until the next summer. Uh, and all the summer cool stuff that goes around here, that'll start to dwindle. The fair is coming up, which always kind of signifies the end of the summer. So all that stuff sucks. The summer's cool around here and I'm going to be bummed when it's over. My wife's a teacher, so she's home all summer. That part's nice. But at the same time, I got a draft coming up this weekend and the preseason is usually like a cool thing to kind of get you up to your draft. For me, it's going to be like, I'm going to draft this weekend and then I'm going to hate the preseason because it's just going to feel so much longer than normal. Luckily I'm in another league plus the listener league. So I'll have those to look forward to, but the preseason is just going to feel like forever. So my last take is August is a weird month because on the one hand it feels really quick in short, and you want it to last forever. And on the other hand, as a football fan, you can't wait for it to be over. All right, one last thing for me. Uh, no big surprise or outrageous opinion to say that the music industry is faltering. Okay. Or dying or who knows what. Saw a really interesting article on the dailybeast.com 
and uh, for some reason they don't put the author of their columns at the top. So, <laughs> so uncredited. So it's going to have to go uncredited for right now. But it was a really smart article about how the music industry could learn from TV, which maybe in the post Seinfeldish era, till the Sopranos was somewhat faltering as well. Uh, and the article is titled Five Lessons the Faltering Music Industry Could Learn from TV. And I think it's really smart. Uh, they are things like target adults, not kids. Uh, adults have money to buy stuff. That's right. Kids have to convince other people to buy stuff. Um, embra- embrace complexity. Everything doesn't have to be simple and plain and boring. Uh, we like stuff that's challenging. Just look at some of the shows that have been huge successes. Um, Improve the technology. Uh, Jack White's album just sold a record for the most albums, like vinyls, sold. Really? um, Since Pearl Jam's Vitology. Wow. And I think that's because digital music is very tinny. And it's maybe getting to the point that it's worth having a record player to be able to listen to quality music once in a while i don't have an ear for that kind of a thing so it's always sort of good enough for me i don't know that i have an ear for it but i am someone that likes to own things in a world where it's so easy to just download like a a movie illegally or download an album illegally i like to hold things and i know eddie vatter is big on this but there's nothing cooler than like holding a big album with the artwork and putting them on your shelf it's just like your living room has movies all over it yep and I barely buy them anymore. Right. It's yeah. but it it's cool to see shelves of DVDs or I don't know. I think it is anyway. I agree. So I think there's people like me out there that grew up with this stuff in their hands, and like you said, now they have money. So the last two are resist tired formula resist tired formulas, which I couldn't agree with more, and invest in talent and quality. Uh, they use the example of Netflix spending a lot of money for Kevin Spacey. Well, it worked out because Kevin Spacey is really great, and House of Cards is. Their most popular or second most popular show. Right. Between that or Orange, Orange is the New, New Black. Black. Yeah. Uh, one of the two. But I think this is a really smart article. Uh, TheDailyBeast.com. I'll tweet it. Uh, some really great points made about how music can learn from TV. And we can all agree that music has to do something. 